0: Welcome to Market Foolery. It's Monday, June 4th. I'm Christelle joining me in studio today are from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser from Motley Fool Special Ops Mike Olson and from Motley Fool. Inside Value, Joe Maker, gentlemen. It is such a beautiful day. Don't you wish we could have the podcast outside today? That would be nice instead of this
1: <laughs> tiny black box with pattern on the wall. You know, if we had the Idea Factory still up and running, I would submit that to the Idea Factory after this.
0: Work on that. <laughs> uh, we've got Chesapeake Energy, General Motors, and Facebook in the news, but we're going to start on Wall Street, and I will just read verbatim from the New York Times this story about Bank of America. Days before Bank of America shareholders approved the bank's $50 billion purchase of Merrill Lynch in December 2008, top bank executives were advised that losses in the investment firm would most likely hammer the combined company's earnings in the years to come. But shareholders were not told about the looming losses, which would prompt a second taxpayer bailout of $20 billion, leaving them instead to rely on rosier projections from the bank that the deal would make money relatively soon after it was completed. Uh, Jason, I'll start with you. This is all coming to light because of court documents filed in a shareholder lawsuit. What
1: do you make of this? Are you surprised by this? It doesn't seem terribly surprising, but I mean it does seem like when it rains it pours. I mean, you have this coming out with Bank of America, there was the whole thing about the growth rates with Facebook being released to, you know, only certain parties and there was the JP Morgan issue here with the IPO in Tokyo about information being released to to only certain parties. And so, you know, here's another example of you know who really knows what happened? I mean, we can't even really the legal the legalities of this, but right. but I mean, I think it goes to strengthen the argument that there is a tremendous disconnect between what is going on on Wall Street and and what we as individual investors uh, are are dealing with. I mean, there is a tremendous disconnect not only in, th- in information, but really what are the goals that that are actually trying to be attained here? Because it's not just Bank of America that's complicit here. I mean, there's you know. Quite a bit of, of evidence here pointing towards the U.S. government as well, because they were the ones that really backed this deal. You know, even even furthermore, so it's not surprising. It's a shame, uh, but I think it's just one more reason why I wouldn't touch Bank of America stock with a ten foot pole.
0: And Joe, uh, you look at Bank of America stock. Uh, it's as of this taping down like one or two percent. Is that is that Wall Street effectively just sort of? Shrugging its shoulders like, ah, this isn't that big a deal. This is the way it always works or Yeah, it's no secret that this deal was strong armed through. Like this has been pretty well covered
2: and maybe new details are coming out. It's also no secret it was a terrible deal <laughs> and a huge value destroyer. <laughs> I, I do think B of A is somewhat interesting. It's selling at point three times point three, point 0.3, three five times book value. That's a remarkable discount and I wouldn't rush out and buy the shares. I don't own them, but that is
1: Serious, serious pessimism in the stock price.
0: What yeah. it, uh, I was just going to say, I mean, what what gets you interested in this stock?
1: I, that's a good point. I mean, Joe, you know, mentioning the book value and the tangible book value, and we talk about this a lot, and JP Morgan's one that kind of comes to mind here because it, you know, with all the headlines it's been making lately, and JP Morgan's down to tangible book value, and I know, Joe, we've talked about Goldman Sachs before as well. And so it's interesting to see the disparity between a bank like Bank of America and JP Morgan. And I think that, you know, Bank of America right now trading at about half of tangible book value. The market knows. The Bank of America doesn't know what they have on their books. That's why the stock is trading at half, half, uh, you know, tangible book value today. Uh, there really is just no clues to what's going on, and news like this continues to come out. Whereas I think with J.P. Morgan, at least there is at least a better understanding of what might be on the books, and more of a trust in management. Where I mean, I think Bank of America in general, the price reaction today or lack thereof, you know, shows that there's not really any surprise out there that this is going on.
0: Mike, is this stock attractive to you? And if not, what, what is what is a bank stock that is attractive to you?
3: So, I, I have a pretty tough time finding this one particularly attractive. And it's not for the fact that the valuation is not attractive or there is not significant stress in it. But it is instead the fact that this has, in effect, become a nationalized entity. I think Joe and Jason both make great points, which is that this deal was strong-armed through. And, you would not have known what the prospective losses are from that deal at the outset because the government would not have told you because that might have consummated a run on the banking system. And so you need to ask yourself those types of questions in the context of like, what do you understand? What do you not understand? And what do you not know that you don't know? And I I have a an awfully hard time wrapping my head around that. Well,
0: and to Jason's point, I mean, if if Bank of America itself doesn't know what's on its books, then why would any investor feel confident
2: investing in
1: it? All
0: right, I'm
2: going to cut that off. So, that's a totally valid question, but I think what you'll find is questions about tangible book value and what's on bank's balance sheets only come up during times of distress, and that's reasonable. On the other hand, the markdown or the discount to that value is biggest during times where people are asking that question. It's like, 90% Ninety percent of the time, we're totally trustworthy of what's on banks' balance sheets. But then, you know, this other part of the time, we all freak out and assign no value to it, and we write it down. And ironically, those are the best times to be buying bank stocks is when people are questioning what's on the balance sheet most.
1: Yeah, that's right. But I will say there, you have to to sort of discern there between something like a Bank of America or a J.P. Morgan, and so we know that you know and in. The, in times of pessimism when that tangible book value is is you know as low as it's going to go with Bank of America at half and JP Morgan at one. You know, I think investors might be better served to look at that and think, well, JP Morgan that might be a little bit more of a company that uh, you know, based on management and just based on history of the company itself, that maybe that one time tangible book value is a little bit more of a reasonable risk to take than a Bank of America at half. You know, I remember what, four years ago when Bank of America was at three dollars and I was sitting here kicking around, is that a share worth buying? Because my ultimate you know suspicion was like Mike had mentioned, it was going to become a national nationalized entity. and Even though it's technically not, it still more or less is. Right. And, and, and I think that you have to take that into concern as well. There's definitely some risk there, and there's probably some money to be made as well.
2: Yeah. For a little perspective, Goldman has been public for 3,300 days and has sold at a lower price to tangible book than it does
3: today for only eight of them. To kind of close the loop on the Bank of America thing, and also just the idea of So you have a Goldman, you have a J.P. Morgan, you have a Bank of America, and the question you're trying to ask yourself right now is you you really have no unique ability to assign a value to these things. Instead, it's whether or not there is a culture of prudent risk-taking within the organization. And I guess if we wanted to look at the spectrum here, Bank of America is probably on the lower end of that spectrum. Um, That's a totally valid point. Mm -hmm. But we're about to move on to Chesapeake, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Talk about prudent risk-taking. Speaking of prudent management, uh, yeah, we talked recently about uh, Carl Icahn, the activist investor, taking a 7.5% stake in Chesapeake Energy. This morning shares up more than 3% on the news that the company is replacing four members of its nine-member board of directors Mike,
3: is is this gonna rein in Aubrey McClendon? I think I think there are meaningful reasons for optimism right here, which is basically that the the principal problem with Chesapeake shares and the entity itself has been that there is a staggering credibility gap. It has just absolutely blown a hole in the valuation. Uh McClendon himself, I filed the stock, I own the shares for many years now, more years than I perhaps would like to. Uh, There has been a consistent change of strategy. There has been problems regarding whatever the capital structure is, and there is also an ongoing and open question surrounding the extent of their actual debt obligations. So. When you think about that, now we have four board members coming on. Three of them are from Southeastern Asset Management's uh, nominees, and one is an Icon representative, and maybe Icon himself, or maybe somebody who's he he has appointed. Then you have Lou Simpson. So these guys, in effect, control the board now. This provides a meaningful check and balance to what was previously kind of a circus, a little bit of a free for all. Um, now you, got, what I want to see right now. I want to see more transparency regarding the extent of their obligations, and I want to see these guys try and move on monetizing the assets.
0: Uh, Joe, does this move make the stock more attractive either for individual investors or, as we've kicked around before, does it make Chesapeake Energy more attractive as an acquisition candidate?
2: Both. Both. If You're happy to see this if you're an individual investor, like Mike was saying. And as far as the takeover goes, you know, the board's a little more diverse, a little more independent than it was. And they also de staggered the board. Uh, so now you have annual elections, and that's a big deal in terms of
3: takeovers. So all in all, I think you got to be very happy with this. Collectively, case. they also own 21% of the shares. So
0: these guys yeah. are very incentivized. So if you're ExxonMobil, and to the
3: extent that you're thinking about Chesapeake Energy, it's looking more attractive. Yeah. Well, you can certainly you can have a little bit more confidence in what numbers you're being fed now.
0: General Motors is looking to cut its pension obligation by 20% by offering buyouts to 42,000 salaried retirees. Uh, GM is also paying Prudential Insurance to take over the remaining $26 billion in pension obligations, um, uh, obligations that obviously GM will have after the buyouts. Uh, Joe, what do you think of this deal? Because when this deal was announced on Friday, shares of GM popped. As of this taping, they're down more than 5%. They were actually down lower than they were Friday before the pop. What do you think of this deal? I think it's a great deal. I think the recent pullback has a lot to do with the European business,
2: where they're just hemorrhaging cash right now, and that's likely to only get worse. Um, I've been so wrong about GM. It's down about 40% since I recommended it. Uh two december's ago and that's pretty painful but all in all i'm pretty happy with how they're executing uh, sales have been up The uh, cash position is strong they had 32 billion in cash heading into this announcement and they're basically taking away a, a huge block of potential or not potential but real tangible liability here with this move offering lump sub payouts and i love it they got the cash to do it they should be doing it Investors want to see them putting that cash to work, and they're finally getting around to it.
0: Uh, Jason, we've talked before about Ford. Uh, They obviously have pension obligations of their own. They don't outsource them. uh, Outsource them? Do they need to? I don't know. Do they? Is is, if you're Ford and you're looking at this news, are you thinking about? Taking a page out of GM's playbook and giving Prudential a call, or does it ultimately not matter? Yeah,
1: I don't know that that matters as much as just the point that they're tackling these issues to begin with. I mean, we're looking at a real transition, and uh, you know, from you know back in the '50s uh, where pensions were a real attractive perk of a job for you know factory workers at places like Ford and GM. It's just, you know, they, they overpromised and under delivered. They promised way more, way more than they could ever deliver. And so we're going to see I think these pensions continue to return uh subpar returns for, for years to come just thanks to low interest rates. But, you know, to see them address these liabilities now, I think hopefully we'll see a transition going forward so that these pensions will be more or less they, they, they are being more or less phased out of, of the workforce as we're going on and um You know, I mean, it it remains to be seen. I like that they're standing up to the UAW and really, you know, trying trying to say, look, we have got to work both ways. There need to be a profitable operation to to stay in business, and and those liabilities are going to kill them if they don't address them now. right? Right.
3: This is a great decision, if nothing else, for the fact that investors are. If you were to look at the balance sheet, you would think that the pension obligation is X sum, but in reality, that is based upon a fairly complicated series of assumptions all relating to interest rates, market rate of return, the life of the retirees, the rate of compensation increase. And so that's a long way of saying that these liabilities can change pretty dramatically in the course of a given year, even, if you were to tweak a little bit at your assumptions. And so now, if you're GM or Ford, getting rid of these things when you consider this a very competitive business, has high fixed costs, and you're also subject to a degree of fashion risk if your vehicles don't hit. You know, you you don't want to have a lot of leverage in addition to those risks. So this is a smart decision for them.
0: Well, so to that point, uh, Jason, I, I'm just assuming that to the extent that pension obligations change dramatically, I'm guessing they don't change in favor of the company. It's not, it's not like Ford or GM – is going to wake up a year from now and like, hey, guess what? Our pension obligations changed. <laughs> we were lowballing we're, our returns estimate. Exactly. We're, no, we're so think, much better off. And so, if that is the case, does that make both Ford and GM stocks worth just staying away from? Because that seems like kind of a, a big cloud hanging over both companies. To
1: me, I think they are pretty stiff headwinds over the course of the next five or so years. And so, you know, I tend to probably shy away from them just because I... I just I think those are two too strong headwinds to really overcome. And I, I will say I think that for, for anyone out there who's interested in this at all, it's really I have a book recommendation for you. Roger Lowenstein, who just he's a terrific writer, mm-hmm. wrote a book out there called While America Aged and GM. It's it, he uses one of the one of the sections of the book is on GM and their former uh, pension you know shortfalls and problems. But it uses uh, GM, the New York Transit System, subway system, and uh, the city of San Diego as examples of of the real downfalls of these of these promised pensions and, and kind of where we're headed now. It's a definitely definite good read. Mm -hmm. Joe,
0: just to close out on GM stock, you're still hanging in there?
2: Yeah, I'm still hanging in there. I mean, it's selling at six times earnings. I like the moves they're making, and I still think catalysts are ahead. You know, paying this down or removing this obligation is one, and the other is the government leaving. Uh, There's still a significant shareholder, and I think that's going to change after the election. Either No matter who wins, there's going to be a change there, and I think that's going to get a big monkey off their backs, and ultimately, ultimately, I think the the stock is going to move forward, but it's obviously been a disappointment.
0: And finally, Facebook is reportedly working on a way to allow children under the age of 13 to use Facebook under parental supervision. Jason, as the other parent in the room, is this
1: a good thing? Yeah, hang on, Chris. I was actually just posting on Facebook how much I don't (laughs) like this decision. (laughs) No, I think it's an awful decision. I mean, I I don't. I I, you know, I have two girls, seven and and almost six, and you know, my wife and I both agree wholeheartedly. We won't let them on Facebook until they're thirteen, and even then, it's going to take you know some. They're going to have to at least prove out to show that they're responsible enough to do it. But to me, I mean, I like where they're going with this. They're they're trying to expand that user base, but. I mean, as a parent, it just requires (laughs) – I, now I have to keep an eye over that. Like instead of saying, "Well, I know they're in their room reading or doing, you know, painting or something," like that, now I got to figure. Well, I'm gonna have to sit there and, and oversee your Facebook, you know, account for an hour a day or two. And I've just got—I have no no time to do that. No desire to do it.
0: Forget parents for a moment, okay. Mike and Joe. Uh, if you're a shareholder of Facebook, aren't you applauding this? Because if this if this well, works, Chris is a look shareholder. I'm
1: applauding. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for it. But, no, I'm not a shareholder, but yeah, you got to.
3: So I've got—I think there are two observations to make here. The first is that if you wanted to basically jump on the Facebook IPO mess-up bandwagon, you would go ahead and say, all right, this is them acknowledging that they've kind of run out of runway on their prospective user base and ways to make additional money from their user base. If you wanted to take the long-term perspective on this, you would say, you know what, this is brilliant because you have the ability to develop a lifecycle set of analytics and observe how your users consume things Across the span of their lifetime, and how much more effectively can you place ads if you have this sort
1: of data across such a long period of time?
2: Joe, you know, creepy but true.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean the problem is that you know the thirteen, twelve, ten year old kids. I mean, what kind of behavior? I they're not buying anything really, so to speak. I mean, the, the ads can only target them so much. It's not like they're out there making the purchases that maybe the parents make. So how dependable is that? How I guess how dependable are those analytics really? And well, you want to know what you want well, to know, what want to know like. no doubt it, no doubt, it. and I think that's an interesting way to look at it. You have this whole lifespan of information, but i I kind of wonder where does that really actually begin? I mean, I don't know that ten and thirteen is really where where it becomes so relevant. I could see eighteen and on because you know kids are going to college, they're developing more independence, they're making their own money and making more of their own purchases
0: well and the, yeah, but it, if my kids are any indication, it's not that. They're not being targeted ads. It's that they're being targeted ads, and then they target me. So it's well, you know no if they're watching the Disney Channel with God knows how many ads for the Disney Cruise Line. Guess what? I'm going to be hearing about that.
1: Oh yeah. Well, you know, you're going on a Disney every project, damn right? day. Well, and <laughs> I couldn't believe this number here that seven and a half million under the age of thirteen, seven and a half million children under the age of thirteen are already on, and five million under the age of ten. I just I can't believe that. That's amazing. Amazing numbers. Just quickly
0: around the table. Again, this is being reported in the Wall Street Journal. This is not a done deal. To Jason's joke earlier about people liking or not liking this, do you think this actually goes through? I'll start with you, Joe. No. No?
1: Mike? Uh, No chance. I just don't see how it does. It's
0: unanimous. Facebook, four to nothing. We're opposed. Jason Moser, Mike Olson. Showmaker. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Pleasure. You can go outside now. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.